My name is Dr. Josephine Palladmore and my superpower is creating business cultures that transform organizations team by team. I recently had an insightful conversation with Jeremy Utley, adjunct professor and co-founder of Stanford's Master of Creativity at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, commonly known as the D School at Stanford. Jeremy is also the co-author of Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters, which has been translated into more than 10 languages and has been named a top 10 innovation work by Thinkers50. Jeremy is a leading expert on the topic of innovation. His work has appeared in Time, Harvard Business Review, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, and many other reputable publications. He's a general partner at Free Spin Capital and lives just south of Stanford with his wife and four daughters. This conversation inspired me so much. I know you're going to feel the same way too. Hello, Jeremy. It's such a privilege to have you on the podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you today? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's wonderful. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We've planned it for a while. So um, this is going to be a highlight of my week. We are I'm really keen for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Some of them know you very well. Some of you, some of them don't know you. So perhaps if you could just say a little bit about you and also, you know, particularly what you're, what you're passionate about. Sure. My pleasure. Yeah, I'm Jeremy Utley. I uh, am married, happily married for almost 20 years um, and father of four daughters. I have, for the past 15 years, been teaching at Stanford's Design Institutes, uh, where I teach graduate students and executives the methodology that we have pioneered here called design thinking, which is basically a way of helping folks maybe who have historically not thought of themselves as creative with the tools that, you know, historically call it quote unquote creative people have used to solve problems, really teaching them that everyone has the capacity to be creative and they just need to, they need to grow that capacity. They need to grow their confidence and their competence to, to wield their creative skills. And so my passion is really um, helping individuals and helping organizations unleash the creative potential of their people. Oh, that, that's wonderful. And, and I know that a lot of the, um, the real fo um, foundations of this work has been done at Stanford and, and you have, um, you, you have quite a, um, you know, a track record in this area. How did you get to, to Stanford? What was your pathway? Where did you start? Yeah, I was actually a student in the business school and I had been a management consultant. I was a finance professional and had every intention of going back into consulting. And I had an opportunity to work at a startup in India in 2008. And I spent the summer in uh, just outside of Delhi in Noida and had a transformative experience actually with design, seeing how the team used design to solve real human problems in the world. And it just, it sparked my curiosity and my interest. And I went back to Stanford thinking, I've got to take some of these classes. And so as a graduate student in the business school, I came over to the D school, which was radically different environment and orientation. And I'm with people from engineering and the human humanities and computer science and law and medicine. And we're all kind of immersed in this methodology. And it just, it floored me. It was really, it was a really an eye-opening experience that derailed or you could say re-railed my life 
Isn't that amazing? And I think that multidisciplinary approach too is so exciting once you, yeah. and once you get yeah. immersed in that, it's really exciting, isn't it? Oh, it's and, incredible. And yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you have an idea and then the, you know, if, I remember very distinctly, we were working on a product to enable folks who, um, in India in particular, our project partners in India, we were working to develop kind of an energy storage solution, you know, mm -hmm. they, uh, they will, they'll build their homes one brick at a time. Literally, they'll buy a brick at a time, right, to build the home. We thought, well, what if you could store, you know, and a, a generator is an enormous investment, but there's no brick of a generator, right? You build a house a brick by brick, but you can't build a generator. Well, what if you could actually? Mm -hmm. We had envisioned this idea of like a, of a battery system that as you kind of clicked it together, the capacity of the battery actually increased, right? And we have this idea, well, then the electrical engineer just whips out CAD and starts kind of like you know, mocking up going, you mean like this? And we're like, uh, you know, and so that was a moment Amazing. where it's one thing for us to be talking about something. It's another thing for somebody to be able to just make it right. Exactly. And that interdisciplinary collaboration, that's really where the magic happens. And yet I would say most individuals, most organizations don't really have, they have very robust practices for operations within a discipline or within a function. But when it comes to collaborating between disciplines, most of the time, most of the participants check their expertise at the door and defer yeah. to someone who's kind of the localized expert. And what design thinking is, it's really a language for interdisciplinary collaboration to, to amplify the collective contributions of each of the respective members rather than having them leave their expertise at the door. Yeah, exactly. and. Um... And, and I'm glad you, you define that because um, let's not assume people know uh, what design thinking is. I think that, um, so, you know, if you were going to give, give me a crash course on what design thinking is, because there's a suite of methods there as well. How would you describe yeah. that just to kind of get everyone on the same page? Yeah, it's a, it's a methodology. It's, a, it's a, a tool set for interdisciplinary teams to use to generate potential solutions to real business and human problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. And and um, what I love about design thinking, I, and my my introduction to design thinking was when I was leading strategic change at Telstra, which is a, a multinational telecommunications company based mm. in Australia. And um, we actually had a design thinking center. We had we were building that internal capability because we saw mm. the real power of that in linking people right across the organization from your network engineering all the way through to your frontline customer service people. So, yeah. you know, yeah. creating, you know, like a lab where people can come together and solve problems. So we saw that and it was, um, it was amazing that, that, and, and almost, um, that play that it introduces to the, mm. the, 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 you know, ideation and being able to play with ideas and doing that before you go to solution, because I think that's the other, um, that's the other symptom I think that we see in organizations who are perhaps um, not not enabling the potential of creativity is running to solutions or one solution too quickly. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, there's this, I mean, it's a deeply held cognitive bias called the Einstein effect where, and it's true for individuals, it's true for the organization that there's a tendency to just fixate on an early solution, despite the fact that there's no empirical evidence that suggests that early, that the, the quality of a solution yeah. is correlated to its arrival time. You know, in fact, there's a lot of there's a lot of research that suggests the, the the variable that impacts the quality of your solutions the most is actually the quantity of your solutions. Right. 
And yet, I think the average corporate brainstorm yields something like two ideas, right? So yeah. you, you, you wonder, well, why, aren't, why don't we have, and here, here's kind of the, the shocking thing, getting a little bit to play, but um, I would just say play is an example of a counter-cultural, counter-intuitive lever play certainly one, but a lot of times organizations will say, why don't we have better ideas? And for me, the answer often is because you don't have worse ideas. And it's, it's actually, it's the, the safety and the divergence of thinking that embraces bad ideas that actually yields better ideas. And because most folks just want good, they just want safe, they end up with mediocre. And it's actually, that's the real danger. That's the mm. real enemy is a, is a culture that's just looking for good enough. And yet that's, it's a kind of an unspoken rule that you have to actually, you have to make it explicit and recalibrate to, according to a different set of objectives and rules. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. And you, you say to think out of this, out of the box, you have to get out of the box. What are some other ways mm -hmm. that you, you know, really recommend to get out of the box? Yeah. I mean, it's, that statement is easy to say, but yet it's hard for people to do, you know, because mm -hmm. um, they got meetings, they got, you know, uh, email, <laughs> uh, Slack messages, whatever. There's all sorts of reasons to stay in the box. And yet nothing interesting happens in the office. The interesting stuff is actually outside of the office. And yet it's really hard for people to get out. It was really hard, you know. So one way to get out of the box is you you actually have customer meetings. You go visit your customers. You see what they're doing in their environment. You see the problems they're facing in their environment, right? That fuels your own understanding and your purpose. Um, another way to get out of the box is to seek, I mean, I, I would say customer meetings are kind of a subset of a broader category of activity, which is getting inspiration. You know, and one of the important reasons to get out of the box is because that's where you get inspired, you know, and you, you the outputs of our thinking, mm are a function of the inputs to our thinking. So if you want different output, well, you need different input, right? And if you're sitting in the same place, talking to the same people, doing the same things, you go, why am I not coming up with different ideas? Well, That's it's, so true. it's very, I, I can promise you, you're never gonna come up with new ideas if you keep doing the same thing, right? And mm -hmm. so you can vary your routines, um, but you know, I've heard of silly things like changing the path that you take to work. I've heard of things yeah. like that heads of banks have und undertaken and employed, right? So not, you know, circus mm. clowns, but real legitimate professionals <laughs> with real, not, Nothing against clowns. Hey, let's not diss the circus clowns. Yeah, so nothing a against clowns. But I mean, I think there's a there's a sense in which a lot of a lot of professionals can kind of roll their eyes. Yeah. You know, like that you hear the word inspiration, you're like, oh, you mean like the poster on the wall that says courage? It's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. What I when I say inspiration, I mean yeah. the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input. Mm. That's inspiration. Yeah. And for folks who come from a creative field. They, you know, I remember when I was in business school, my wife's a fashion designer. She had to go to Paris on an inspiration trip. And I'm like, this is a boondoggle. You're, you're just getting macarons, you know? No, she's not. She's getting inspiration. Yeah. And she came back and she was super inspired. And I found myself mm -hmm. going, I can't put that in a spreadsheet. You know, it doesn't yeah. add up. And I, I asked right. my friend, I was teaching a class to a bunch of MBAs and uh, my co-teacher is a hip hop artist named Lecrae. I just asked Lecrae, um, what do you think about inspiration? And he dropped a bar, you know, it was only a hip hop artist can. He said, inspiration is <laughs> a discipline. 
And I realized in that moment, as I was looking at people's faces, they're kind of like, you know, they're far off stare. It was like a time warp looking at myself 10 years earlier as I'm in my spreadsheet, my wife goes to Paris. Inspiration's not even on their radar as a tool, as a possibility, let alone a routine in their life. Yeah. And so I feel the reason I say this isn't about circus clowns is because some of these words that we use people in kind of quote air quote, if you could see the video of this, you'd see these huge ironic air quotes, these professional contexts where, of course, we don't play here. I go, great. Good luck. You know, you you, you can't do anything worth doing if you can't play. If you can't mm. laugh, if you can't leave the building, you know who is a yeah. great example of getting inspiration is Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve Jobs would, I remember once he, he was frustrated with the way the Macintosh mach- uh, team was working on the computer and he left the office. He stormed out, he went to the Macy's in Palo Alto and he's, you know, kind of haunting the aisles up and down the aisles and he finds a Cuisinart food mixer. And he's like, yes. And he bought it, brought it back to the studio. He said, the computer should look like this. Uh. Yeah. And, you know, we all, because we've seen the Mac and we see, we go, oh, yeah, I can see that. But think about like being a yeah. computer designer. They're like, what? Right? Exactly. But the point is Steve Jobs knew what very few professionals do, which is like when you're stuck, get up and get out. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And that's, and again, think out of the box by getting out of the box yeah. is the, it's a simple way like, of literally. saying it. But what, what are your instincts or or what are your what's the muscle memory around how you respond to being stuck it's really important Mm. yeah and you know um in australia a lot of us are still working at home for most Mm. of the week and i think that that's Mm. created a bit of stuckness as well and um you know many organizations what a shame sorry sorry to interrupt but what a shame because there's so much potential inspiration like the conference room by the way is never where creativity flourished Mm. okay so it's not like the reason that we aren't creative is because we're no longer in that you know glorious conference room where creativity was blossoming no we have all sorts of creative inputs within arm's reach as it were and yet as you're saying we're stifled to me it's one of the most untapped potential Mm. for inspiration moments in the history of mankind we are all like the, the friction is so dramatically reduced to get out of the like literally I just have to walk out of my garage here. Yeah. And yet I'll spend the whole day hunched over my keyboard. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's insane. Exactly. Exactly. So so I'm thinking a, a daily routine of taking that unexpected route. I have beautiful where I live in uh, I'm, I'm in inner city Melbourne and I have beautiful laneways and I mm-hmm. often take an unexpected route through the laneways. They're cobbled street laneways. And sometimes you come across really amazing artwork that someone's just put in a laneway for maybe no one to see and that that is really inspiring so i think that's what you're talking about jeremy is take that unexpected route and um sometimes it's about meeting people too you know kind of creating creating um opportunities to talk to someone new and talk to someone who you might not necessarily talk to as well i think Mm. yeah yeah i think um folks, they want creativity or they want solutions to be so deterministic, you know, and so they can't appreciate something like randomness. I promise there's a point here, but randomness is actually profoundly valuable to the creative pursuit. So say you're facing a problem. I'm trying to figure out how to build trust amongst my team. Mm. Okay. How do I do that? Well, okay. Well, I can sit here and I can think about it. Maybe I can look at my bookshelf, which is better than nothing, Mm -mm. but 
it's like, uh, I'm just going to send the email. I don't know how to do that, right? Well, why don't you just like walk down the street? And if you walk down the street with this question of trust, the Amazon truck passes by and I can go, well, how does Amazon build trust? Oh, well, they, they, they put their logo on the tape, the, which is like the most forgettable part of the package, but they've yeah. used it as a way to signal interesting. Is there a forgettable thing that I could use to signal? And then I go uh. by the... I go by the kids' playground, you know, and I go, how does a playground build trust? Well, the flooring underneath the jungle gym is a different material. It signals safety. Ooh, how could I show people there's something safe underneath them? You know, and then I walk by the nail salon at the corner, right? Mm -hmm. How do they build trust? Oh, they've got pictures in the front of all the different nail designs they've done. Right. Well, and the point being, I took a problem in my mind and I yeah. got out of the world and I was willing to entertain the possibility of serendipitous connections. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's not the only way to do it. But the point is, you, I think that a lot of people go, unless I know where I'm going and exactly yes. what I'm going to learn, I'm not going to do it. And I go, well, yeah. that's not the point. The point is to is to get out, not knowing where you're going, not knowing what you're going to get out of it and allow the amazing kind of connections that form to form. And at the very least, at the very, very least, you will have you will have reinvigorated yourself to get back yes, to your desk with that vigor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. I really love that. I, I, I can see how I can apply that straight away in the work that I do with teams. Often I, you know, often I'm I'm hitting up against that because often I do a lot of work resetting or relaunching teams with team leaders and the team leader wants some you know assurance about the experience at the end of the offside or at the end of the you know the session mm -hmm. and um mm -hmm. and I'm 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 a little bit um taken with this idea of randomness so I'll see if I can in inject some of that I think that would be lovely and and you're saying Jeremy I, I and I know that a lot of what you do is evidence-based there's an evidence base for this as well it's like you're saying it's not just um it's not just nice to have it's we know um don't we through the evidence through the research that this is something that really does inspire creativity and innovation yeah yeah and I, I mean one of my favorite um, researchers is a gentleman named Amos Tursky, who is the research partner to Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for mm -hmm. inventing the field of behavioral economics. Like yeah. literally yeah. prior to Kahneman and Tursky, we thought humans were rational beings. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is the world we lived in prior to Kahneman <laughs> and Tursky, right? And Tursky, you know, once, and, and there you think about their output, their work output was basically radical and inventive mm. experiments. They Absolutely. designed some amazing experiments. Someone asked Amos Tursky once, how did you and Danny do it? How did you design such? I never could even think of those experiments. And you yeah. know what, what Amos Tursky said? This is his actual quote. The secret to doing good research is to always be a little underemployed. You waste years when you can't waste hours. Mm. Yeah. And he was referring to the fact that he and Kahneman would take these long ambling rocks walks around Hebrew University mm -mm -mm. and they were laughing and they were joking and they were re reinventing the field of behavioral yeah, economics. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I love that story. And, uh, and yeah, absolutely. What a, what a legacy that's left as well. So really, really important. Um, a lot of, uh, 
in the area of innovation, a lot of organisations, particularly in Australia and um, and other organisations I know globally, are using things like deliberate time or space in organisations. They'll they'll put some time into hackathons and bringing people together. Um, are, are you a fan of creating that space? Because uh, I know that that you you talk about that a little bit. Yes, if. Tell me more about the yes, if. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I am all about, I mean, innovation is not an event. Innovation is a practice. It's a capability, et cetera. The, so that's not to say that events don't have a place. They do. But if you, if you treat innovation like it only happens at the sprint, yeah. here's a question. How many medals have you won? And for most people, they have a bunch of sprints or a bunch of hackathons and they have no, they have nothing in the trophy case. Yeah. And you wonder why, well, here's why. Who's practicing? Yeah. Who's in the gym? Who's on the track? You know, most people mm. show up to the sprint and you know what they do? They pull a hamstring. <laughs> okay. There's no trophy. There's, they're in the hospital. Why? They pull a hamstring because they, they haven't stretched. And then they're told yeah. to go sprint. I mean, it's like, imagine if you and I, I go, okay, Josephine, we're both going to go sprint around the block right now. Yeah. We both yeah. come back limping, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, because you have to, you have to stretch, you have to warm mm -hmm. up, you have to condition. And then the sprint can serve an amazing, it is the place to win medals. Yeah. Provided that you've been doing the work of practice. Yeah. For many organizations, the sprint has become a replacement for practice. Mm that will never work.